studying the book of Romans together on Sunday morning. Look at that. We're already in chapter 2, huh? If you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, uh, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Wave to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today and uh, read it and make a good friend of it. It'll change your life. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in, whatever you, uh, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God uh, leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your uh, penitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and, re uh, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the law of Moses, by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, its depth, its clarity. We thank you that there's a book that speaks to the greatest needs within our life and the greatest needs in the world and then speaks to them, Lord, with a clarity and, and with a, uh, with a uh, redemptively. And Lord, we thank you for every a bit of revelation that we can have concerning your heart and your mind and how you see the world that we live in, how you see us, how you assess us, how you see our needs and how you've provided for them. And we pray that as we study this book of Romans again this morning that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a supernatural capacity, Lord, to understand what it is that you want all of us in the world, saved and unsaved, to understand from these verses this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
We remember that the overarching theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. And the gospel is essentially the good news of God's provision of salvation and the forgiveness of sins uh, to sinners who have been separated from God by virtue uh, of our sin. We also remember that in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is establishing the guilt of all mankind before God both the Jew and the Gentile, and, uh, and that each of us are deserving of God's righteous judgment. And he is using the first three chapters of this book to establish that, again, as we've seen each week so far, for the simple reason that if we do not understand uh, our sinful condition, if we do not understand our need for a Savior and our need for salvation, then we will uh, not pay uh, the slightest notice to uh, the Savior and the salvation that uh, God was going to send into the world and has sent into the world in His Son. Uh, Jesus. So we've got to be made aware of the bad news of our sin and our lost condition, the consequences of our sin before we'll ever appreciate and then uh, hopefully receive to ourselves the gospel, the good news of salvation that's found in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. As we've already uh, just seen last Sunday morning as we finished it in chapter 1, Paul focused specifically upon the guilt of the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, uh, before God. And basically, as, as he's finishing out his condemnation of the Gentile world, it, what you have there is a description of the out-and-out -out pagan, uh, those who refuse the witness of the creation to a creator, those who deliberately suppress the truth about God uh, in order to protect some practice of sin within their lives, those who uh, don't even consider a thought about God to be worthy of being retained within their mind. They consider uh, any thinking about God, any uh, allowing God to enter even into their thoughts as something that is unworthy of them. And then we saw the judgment that of God that comes upon such a person, God simply gives them up to the practice of their sin, the bondage that always comes with sin, uh, and then and, and resulting then in their bondage in an to sin an explosion of wickedness. But now in verses, uh, first 16 verses of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul moves on to establish the guilt of a different kind of person. Uh, he, he moves on to establish the guilt of the moral person before God, uh, what, who I like to refer to as the morally educated uh, person, what we might call uh, a good person uh, in the world in comparison to the people that were addressed in uh, chapter 1. And Paul, having written what he has uh, just written about the out-and-out -out pagan. What he does, and, and remember there's no chapter breaks in, the, in his letter. He's flowing from one thought uh, right into the other. There's no divisions or anything. He is just continuing his letter. And having written what he's just written about the out-and-out -out pagan, he immediately, as he does so often in the book of Romans, he anticipates a potential protest uh, that would form in the heart of uh, some readers. And then he proceeds to answer the anticipated protest 
that he thinks some will have in, in listening to what he has written in chapter one. And the anticipated protest from uh, the morally educated person that Paul anticipates is this, where someone would think, well, Paul, uh, we can hardly object to your description of the overwhelming majority of the Gentile world, uh, your assessment of the great unwashed uh, masses. But you've gone too far in characterizing the entire Gentile world in this way. After all, everyone isn't like what you've described them to be in chapter 1. There are moral people among the Gentiles. We are not all like what you describe uh, them to be in chapter 1 in terms of their sinful practices. We are mortified by the sins that you describe in chapter 1 as well, and we would condemn them as fully as you would. And so the accusation of Paul that he anticipates is that, Paul, you have uh, broad-brushed the Gentile uh, world here. And thus, Paul moves on in his progression of establishing the guilt of the entire world before God and, and thus in need of God's salvation by addressing this group, uh, the moral person, the morally educated person, and now establishing their guilt before God on the basis, not of creation, but on the basis of conscience. In chapter 1, he established the guilt of the Gentile world based upon creation and its revelation of a creator. In this passage, he establishes the guilt of the morally educated person, the person who would say, I am a good person, and he establishes their guilt on the basis of conscience. And then in the remainder of chapter 2 and on into the early verses of chapter 3, he will establish the guilt of the Jew on the basis of the law of Moses. Now, uh, the Bible commentators and Bible scholars view these 16 verses in two principal ways. Uh, some believe that in the first 16 verses of chapter 2 that Paul is addressing the Jews alone here, uh, that the guilt of the Gentiles have been established in chapter 1, and since there are only two main divisions within mankind, that is Jew and Gentile, that when he goes into chapter 2, he begins to speak exclusively uh, of uh, the Jews and that he begins to speak to them in verse 1 and then finally he identifies them by name as you see there in verse 17. There are others uh, who view this uh, as I do as Paul's address to the morally educated people among the Gentiles. And that includes Jews, but it also includes Gentiles. That's what he's describing in these 16 verses. And the reason that I believe this about uh, the focus of the passage is that in verses 1 and 3, he addresses the audience that he's speaking to with the words, O man. And that, uh, the Greek word that is used there 
is one that is referring to an individual of the human race. He is talking to Jew and Gentile alike. There is no differentiation in his mind. There will be when he gets to verse 17, and he starts to talk about the Jews. Uh, but there isn't uh, early on uh, in, uh, in the chapter. So, O man refers to uh, any individual of the human race, Jew or Gentile, male or female. And so clearly he's not uh, addressing the Jews alone. Additionally, as the apostle to the Gentiles, I mean, Paul was fully aware of the fact that if chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 was his sole representation of the Gentile world at the time, uh, he he knew better than anyone who would protest that it was an unbalanced uh, view of the Gentile world. He knew that while it might represent the bulk of the Gentile world at the time, that not all Gentiles had given them to sin, themselves to sin and immorality uh, to the degree that he describes in chapter 1, that there were Gentiles who were comparatively uh, moral, uh, the Stoics among them as well as others. And so how does uh, Paul establish the guilt as he begins to address them now of the relatively moral person before God? the person who lives at least slightly above uh, the degraded moral standard of people around them. Again, the person that we would call a good person or the person who would look at themselves and say, I am a good person. And the Apostle Paul establishes their guilt once again on the basis of this God-given thing called conscience. And it's important to notice that this entire section of verses 1 through uh, 16 are, are framed by the subject of conscience. In verses 14 uh, and 15, he mentions it outright, where he describes it as, verse 14, a law that each of us are born with. He describes it in verse 15 as a law that God has written upon each of our hearts that judges our every thought, our actions, our motives. It accuses us when we do wrong. That is, we know we've done wrong, and when we've done wrong, we feel guilty over it. It excuses us when we do right. That is, it affirms what we are doing is right when we do it, and it blesses us with what we know is a clear uh, conscience. Now, as you've heard me teach every so often through the years, our consciences are an innate God-given knowledge of right and wrong. And it is coupled with the intuitive sense that I should always do what is right and I should never do what is wrong. Every human being, every culture in the world demonstrates that we have this uniform conscience that we possess internally. And as you look all around the world, there's profound evidence for its existence. No matter what the culture is, no matter how uh, across the broad diversity of human beings and mankind, uh, there is the recognition that lying is always wrong, stealing is always wrong, murder is always wrong, adultery is always uh, wrong, and likewise that to refrain 
from lying or stealing or murder or adultery and so forth is always right. But one of the most interesting things about our consciences, once we realize that we possess one, uh, is the recognition uh, that the, the standard of our conscience is higher in every single human life. The standard of our conscience is always higher than our actual practice. <clears throat> Excuse me. That is, that no one lives up to the standard of their conscience and to the life that our conscience dictates that we ought to live. And the fact that we do not live up to even the standard of our conscience, much less the life of Jesus or the law of Moses, but the fact that we do not live up to the standard of our conscience, it reveals to us that our conscience does not have its origin in us, but it has its origin in God who is greater than us. And as a result, our conscience is ever testifying to us of two great things all day, every day. Number one, that we have been created by someone who is greater than us, who has provided us with this conscience. And number two, that we were created something greater than we are now, and we have fallen from that something greater. And all day and every day, this great gulf that exists between the standard of our conscience and the life that we actually live, it is communicating to each of us in every language in the world, you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen, like a great flashing neon light. And it communicates to us that at one time man was superior to what he is now, but he has fallen from that higher place. And all of it is exactly as the Bible uh, declares it, it to be in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis that describes the creation of man, the fall of man, and then uh, the beginning of the redemption uh, of, uh, of man. Our consciences are a strong witness to the existence of God as our creator and the fall of man. But here in verse 1, Paul brings out another aspect of uh, the conscience, and that is that our conscience condemns us. In verse 1, Paul describes the operation of the conscience within our lives that it is something each of us uh, are, is familiar with. When we see, we all understand this from our lives, when we see people do wrong, each and every one of us takes note of it, and we judge them to be wrong in doing what they've just done. This is a part of our daily lives. And the fact that we can form a judgment of wrongdoing concerning the, uh, the life of another person is an indication of some internal God-given standard for doing so. And there is nothing wrong with making that judgment. 
There's nothing wrong with looking at somebody doing wrong, assessing it as wrong, and then in our hearts condemning them for what it is that they've done. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul wrote, test all things and hold fast to what is good. We're called to test uh, the actions and so forth of, of people around us to assess it and then hold fast to what is, is good. Jesus famously in the Sermon on the Mount declared that you'll know a tree by its fruit. Uh, a bad tree does not bring forth good fruit, and a good tree does not bring forth bad fruit by a person's fruit, how they live, what uh, their life is like, we're able to assess what kind of a person they are. That requires judgment on our part in order to do so. And Jesus not only does not condemn it, he commends it as a necessity within our lives. There is nothing wrong with the operation of conscience within our lives. The mistake that Paul is condemning here and it is most prevalent among relatively moral people, is that they are usually so focused upon those who do not live up to the standard of their conscience that they fail to test themselves by that same standard. Because Paul is saying here that if they did, they would realize that they feel, fail to meet the standard of their own conscience as well. Again, no one lives up to the standard of their own conscience. We all live below that standard. And the fact of the matter is that if we were to put our own lives to the test of the standard of our own conscience, we would uh, be exposed as a sinner as well. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 1. The moral person is warned not to pass judgment disapprovingly of others as if uh, they are not guilty of sins as well, as if he or she uh, does not consistently violate the standard of his or her own conscience on a regular basis. God has not supplied us with a conscience for the purpose of comparing ourselves favorably with others who are less moral than us, and then becoming proud and self-righteous as a result. It was given to us that we might notice our own sinful condition before God and become aware of this internal standard that is within us of our own need for the forgiveness of sins and our own need for salvation that's offered by God in the gospel and that comes to us through faith in Christ. And I think that most of us uh, recognize in ourselves that we have a, a, an awful uh, and a great tendency uh, to be much harder in judging others than we are in judging ourselves, and even concerning uh, the same sin. It is amazing how awful my sin looks on other people, uh, and how much uh, comparatively more awful it looks than it does in my own life. 
and how often we deal ruthlessly uh, with sin in other people's lives, but we handle ourselves with kid gloves. I think the classic example of this in the entire Bible is found concerning uh, the life and, and ministry of, uh, of King David. He's the classic example of it, who after committing adultery with a married woman by the name of Bathsheba and then arranging for the death of her uh, husband, Uriah the Hittite, on the battlefield in order to cover for his sin because she became impregnate, uh, impregnated by uh, virtue of, uh, of that uh, adultery. Later, when he was approached by Nathan the prophet who uh, came to him to speak to him of uh, an injustice done in the kingdom, Nathan came to David. David judged these kind of things as the king of the land. And he said, David, there's a situation I want to bring before you. Uh, there is a town in, in, uh, in Israel where there's a very, very rich man who owned many, many flocks, many, many sheep. And then a poor man in the same village uh, who owned just one little lamb. And the lamb was so precious to him and to his family that the lamb was given a place at the table. It ate with them. It, it uh, slept with them. It was, it was a part of the family. It was the, the greatest possession, the greatest uh, blessing that the family owned. And then one day a visitor came to visit the rich man within the city. And the rich man, having so many flocks, didn't want to, uh, uh, to butcher one of his own lambs in order to feed his friend who came. He went to the house of the poor man, took the lone lamb, and then sacrificed it and then fed that lamb uh, to, uh, to his uh, friend. And all of it was a picture of David, who had riches, he had wealth, he had multiple wives. And in coming and taking Bathsheba unto himself, uh, the prize of Uriah the Hittite's life, life, his only wife, the single great blessing in his life. It was all a picture of what David had done. And David, when he listens to the story as Uriah, lay, as Nathan lays it out, he is, uh, becomes furious over what this rich man has done. And he declares in accordance with the law of Moses that that rich man shall restore the first lamb with four lambs. But then he went beyond the law of Moses. So incensed was he by what this rich man had done, he declared that the rich man was to be put uh, to uh, death. And David, as he reacts so forcibly to the sin of a rich man in a hypothetical situation, and, and, and yet within his conscience, within his heart, he's completely accommodating at the moment of the sin, the greater sin that he had committed. And again, it is amazing how terrible our sin looks upon other people. I think it's interesting to realize that how often we notice sins in other people's lives, specific sins, and so often we're prone to condemn people for specific sins, and most often when you, when you find, even if, as we would be self-aware enough or self-searching enough related to it, very often the sin that we notice the most in other people and condemn in them 
is the very sin that we're guilty of or the very sin that we struggle with uh, most. And, uh, and yet how often we're ruthless in the lives of other people. We ought to be gracious, ought to be merciful and compassionate, uh, uh, but we don't operate that way. We're harsh and we're uh, fierce with them, and, but we're a different story. Uh, in my life, it can be overlooked, uh, and it's frightening how casually we can uh, overlook something in our life while being absolutely intolerant of the same thing in someone else's life. And like David, d- demand the strictest judgment upon it. Well, uh, this, let's make an application uh, concerning Uh, all of this. The mistake that the moral person so often makes in this regard is to think that God is going to judge mankind ultimately on some kind of a class curve, that all we need to do is just live life a little bit better than others morally and we'll pass the class. We will get into heaven. This is a prevalent view within our culture. That's why Paul addresses it here uh, and, and, and why Uh, we go into it with some depth. If you were to ask the average person on the street uh, whether they were going to go to heaven or not, and they were to say, yes, I am going to heaven, I guarantee you eight out of ten would declare that they're going to heaven on the basis of the fact that they have lived a good life, that they are living slightly better than the worst within our culture. The, the attitude, the uh, perspective that Paul is correcting here, and it's, and it's a dangerous one, is as prevalent today as ever it was 2,000 uh, years ago as he uh, uh, addresses it. But that God is not going to judge our lives one day based upon the fact that we lived a little bit better than the worst within our family or the worst within the world. We don't get into heaven by living better than others. The standard for the entrance into heaven in terms of righteousness is perfection. And a a standard that each and every one of us in this room and the world has missed. And we have missed it uh, on the basis of any of three things. We've missed it on the basis of the standard of Jesus' perfect life the scriptures themselves, but we've also failed the standard of our own consciences. As Paul will put it later in chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I, I love that phrase as he describes it there, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That fall short uh, produces an image within uh, my mind. And you picture in your mind a trapeze artist who's performing in a circus, and the trapeze referring to that horizontal bar that lies uh, hanging by uh, two ropes that the artist swings upon. And if the trapeze artist swings from one trapeze to another uh, and they miss the approaching bar, it doesn't matter whether they miss it by three inches. It doesn't matter whether they miss it by an inch or a mile. Uh, They're still going to fall to the ground and to their death below. And that is the condition of every single person. It doesn't matter whether we miss heaven by a a foot or we miss it by a hundred yards or we miss it by a mile. It is still to miss heaven as fully and as effectively as the other. And it is this 
truth that is so important for the relatively moral person to understand that salvation is not earned, it is not merited, it is not earned by being better than others, that because we are all sinners, each of us needs to be forgiven of our sins by trusting in Jesus for that salvation. And all of this is, I think, uh, perfectly put in a little saying uh, that uh, perhaps most of you have already heard. I use it on occasion, but everyone ought to hear. All of this is perfectly put in the saying that there are none so bad that they cannot be saved, and there are none so good that they need not be saved. There are none so bad that they cannot be saved. Romans chapter 1 but there are none so good that they need not be saved. Romans chapter 1, then chapter 2, including the moral person and the religious uh, person. And and the importance of this, as I've said, uh, 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 of the, the prevailing view that somehow, if I just live a little bit better than other people, I'm okay, and living a life in complete ignorance of the the righteous standard of Jesus that's required to get into heaven, uh, living in complete ignorance of the high standard of the Word of God and its commandments, and to violate even one of them disqualifies me for heaven, but then also to live my entire life ignorant of what my conscience is intended by God to communicate to me. And it is wonderful to read a passage like this that wakes us up to these kind of things. Now, allow me to close this morning with a very brief observation of the principles of judgment that, as Paul lists them here in in verses 1 through 16. Very important to understand when you read chapter, uh, verses 1 through 16 uh, here in this chapter uh, that Paul is not laying out principles for salvation. If you read it as that, you'll be completely confused. He's not laying out principles of salvation, but principles of judgment. These verses are not about, the focus is not on salvation, it is on judgment. And it teaches us uh, why God's judgment of the moral person will be righteous if they reject Jesus and are determined to stand before God in judgment based upon their own goodness. This is not speaking to the born-again Christian at all. In fact, chapters 1 through 3 don't speak at all uh, as it's establishing the guilt of the world before God. It has nothing to say experientially to any of us who are Christians uh, because chapters 1 through 3 have already done their work in our lives. We've already, in the course of our lives, recognized that we're condemned as sinners and we've turned to Christ and been uh, born again uh, as, uh, as a result. It, it, is, uh, it is written by Paul here 
to convict Jews and Gentiles of sin in order to bring them to a faith in Christ. They've already accomplished that goal uh, within our lives. You say, well, why, why don't we just jump to chapter 4? Uh, because you don't know me very well. But, uh, but because these chapters are so important, and they're very deep. I know the last few weeks we're going some places where you think, do I really need to know that? I can teach the book of Romans and not teach the book of Romans. But we need to know what Paul is saying here because we are interacting with people on a daily basis as Christians who are in these categories. They are in the category of the out-and-out pagan. They are in the category of the good person in their own mind. They are in the category of the religious person. And if we do not understand how to meet them, where they are coming from in life, and to show them the way that God does in his word, why they are guilty before God despite all of those things and need to put their faith in Jesus Christ as a sinner, then we're not equipped as Christians at all. So all of this is vitally important, not only for the person, the, the, uh, you know, the uh, morally educated person who sits here this morning and has the light turned on to the fact that, th- that this is not going to be graded on a class uh, curve, but it's very important for us as Christians to understand these things as, as well. And so Paul now writing here to the morally educated sinner Here, bullet point is what he lays out uh, to them. And verses 1 and verses 14 and and 15, that each of us has a God-given conscience by which we judge others. Number 2 in the second part of verse 1, that no one lives up to the standard of our consciences. Thus, we are as guilty as the sinners that we judge. Number three in verse, two, in verse two, God's judgment will be according to truth. God will judge every person on the basis of truth. What truth is that? The truth of our sinfulness. And who can deny being a sinner? None of us wants to ever, you know, get into eternity and then, say, and then claim before God that somehow his assessment of, of us as a sinner in need of a Savior is somehow misguided or that he's wrong. Nobody in this room or in the whole world would want to ever have somebody play on YouTube somewhere or some kind of a channel on the TV a video of our entire lives. Now, if the truth be known about every one of us, uh, we are very much sinners. Uh, uh, the truth is, is it's clearly known in heaven and in need of, uh, uh, of a Savior. Number four in verse three, uh, it isn't how fine-tuned our internal definitions of right and wrong are. It isn't uh, what we know in our mind, how, where we live in our heads. It isn't those things that make us spiritual. It is the life that we actually live that will be judged. 
And then in verse 4, point number 5, God's patience with us and not judging us immediately uh, for our sin is not to be interpreted that God is okay with our sin or that uh, God condemns the sin in another person, but I live slightly better than them, and so he views uh, the sin in my life in a more favorable light. The only reason God uh, doesn't judge us immediately for our sin is because he's giving us room uh, to repent. But very often, uh, when we hold some kind of an area of sin within our life, and we see it in another person's life, and uh, God judges it in their life, but he doesn't judge it immediately within our lives. We come to think that uh, somehow God views it. He hates it in their lives, but he views it differently in, in our lives, and, uh, and, and we begin to think that our life uh, isn't so bad. We're in a special category uh, that is long, somehow the good life that I'm living must be good enough with God, and we fail to realize, no, that's not how we should view the fact that God doesn't judge our sin immediately as a good person. Uh, It is to realize that, no, we're not a good person in the sense that uh, we're qualified for heaven, and, uh, and God's just giving us more room to repent. The sixth thing that he brings out in verse 5 is uh, that a failure to repent and to be saved, uh, a failure to heed the lesson of conscience, what conscience is, is trying to teach us, uh, that we are uh, sinners and in need of a Savior, that a failure to heed the witness of conscience will result in judgment. And then in verses uh, 6 through 11, so how about that for a jump? That excites some of you, I know, uh, that Paul declares that God's judgment is going to be impartial. And these verses, as some of you are very, very aware, uh, they can be very, very confusing if we don't remember that the focus of these verses is not how to be saved, but rather how all sin will one day be judged. And, and it will all be judged whether that sin flows from a highly immoral person, a highly uh, irreligious person, or from a relatively moral uh, person or a, rel- a relatively religious life. Paul is not teaching that salvation uh, is on the basis of works. He is emphasizing God's impartiality in judging both Jews and Gentiles. And you notice in verses 9 and 10 that he makes both Jews and Gentiles uh, a, a focus here. In other words, the awful Gentile sinner that's described in chapter 1, if he repents and trusts in Jesus and then enters into a life of obedience to God's word and his commandments as a result of that, and, and that now results in a life marked by doing good. That person is going to fare very well, Paul says, on the day of judgment as opposed to the morally educated man or the religious man who believes all the right things but continues to live an unholy life. 
And here is the warning to the moral or the religious person who lives an ungodly life despite all of their beliefs. They've grown comfortable with the gap between uh, the loftiness of their conscience and the life that they actually live. That one day it is not going to be their beliefs that are going to be judged, but their lives and the sin within their lives. And it's important that the moralist realize that it is not what we believe supremely uh, that identifies us for who and what we really are, but it is the life that we actually live. And then Paul closes in in verses uh, 12 through 16 with his eighth point to this particular audience that one day when all of the secrets of of uh, men, as he speaks there in verse 16, when all of the secrets of men are revealed on the day of judgment, uh, that is when men and women are uh, judged uh, uh, before being cast into hell after a lifetime of rejecting God's offer of salvation through his son, uh, Jesus, it will be revealed to be their responsibility for having refused to live up to the light of either their conscience or the law of Moses. Both the Jew and the Gentile have, and both Jew and Gentile have to this very day a God-given law that is intended to bring every single person to a faith in Christ. The Jews had the law of Moses. The Gentile had the law of conscience. As Paul describes it in verse 15, uh, the work of the law within their heart. And Paul is teaching that judgment, not salvation, but judgment will be in accordance to the spiritual light or the revelation that a person has had in life. Whether rejecting God as they do, those that are described in chapter 1, rejecting God in the face of the light of of creation, uh, or here in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2, rejecting God in the face of the light of conscience, or in the remainder of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, rejecting God in the light of his law or in the light of his scriptures, or rejecting God in the light of all three. That's a lot to miss in life from the perspective of heaven. And the Bible appears to teach that if a person rejects God's salvation and ends up entering into eternal judgment, that the degree of that judgment will be according to the amount of spiritual light or revelation that they sinned against in ending up in judgment. For instance, the Pharisee in the New Testament who has access to all three, the witness of creation to a creator, the witness of conscience within him, the witness of the law of Moses, that Pharisee in New Testament times, or the American who is raised as a Christian with access to all three of those witnesses as well will face a stricter judgment than the person who rejected Christ on the basis of creation 
or on the basis of conscience and what those things were intended to teach them and what they chose to ignore all of their life, but were never exposed to the Jewish Scriptures. The Bible teaches there will be varying degrees of punishment related uh, to eternal judgment, and it's all in line with the fact that with privilege comes responsibility. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 11 when he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, he said, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven and who uh, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In the book of Revelation, chapter, uh, late in in the book, it it describes the great white throne judgment. And then I saw, John wrote, a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and from whom the face of uh, the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works uh, by the things which were written in the books, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works." Each one judged on the basis of the level of revelation, the the level of light that they received and they sinned against in uh, in ending up uh, on the brink of heading now into a, a Christless eternity. And all of these things, all of these points as Paul lays them out, are things that he wants the moral, uh, the morally educated person or the person who thinks they're going to get into heaven by being a good person or, or slightly better uh, than uh, other people in the world rather than accepting God's assessment of all of us that we are sinners. Whatever degree we, we might give ourselves to those sins, each of us have been disqualified uh, from heaven in and of ourselves. And everyone needs to understand these things, and Paul uh, lets them and lets us uh, know it as well. And so if you sit here this morning and you, said, and you say to yourself, I've always believed I'm going to get to heaven by uh, just being the best person within my family or the best person within my class or in my neighborhood or within my what, you're judging on the basis of the wrong standard. You're judging as if uh, the rest of us or our fellow human beings are the standard for what is required to have a relationship with God and enter into uh, the holiness and the purity and the beauty of heaven. Uh, Not only uh, does the perfect life of Jesus condemn us, 
Not only does the, uh, the law of Moses, in fact, the commands of the entire uh, book of the Bible condemn us and expose us as sinners and unqualified for heaven on the basis of our own righteousness, but there is even this internal witness that operates within us all day, every day, called conscience that condemns us as well and calls upon and, and does so for the purpose of making us aware of our sin and our need for making Jesus Christ our Savior this morning. Everyone needs to be saved. Everyone needs to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. The good person, the relatively moral person, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And what kind of boasting will there be one day uh, in eternal judgment to be able to say, I only missed heaven by three feet. How much did you miss it by? Uh, I only missed it by one foot. I only missed it by a hundred yards. It is still to miss heaven. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service. And if you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that not only provides you with the forgiveness of sins, but brings you into a relationship with your Creator, uh, with the true and the living God, uh, the, the, the very relationship that you've been created for, all of that awaits you this morning. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship today. Come forward after the service to receive God's gift of a Savior to you today. If you need prayer for anything this morning, these same men and women would love to pray with you and pray for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll uh, close in prayer ourselves. Father, we are in awe of your word. And Holy Spirit, we are amazed at the depth and the majesty of the argument that you, and the case that you lay through the Apostle Paul in these first three chapters concerning our need for salvation. And how it is that you take Paul to places that no one would ever go, uh, to understand things we would never under, otherwise understand, things that only you know and can reveal to us. And Father, we pray for every man and woman in this room or within earshot of this sermon today that is under the self-deception of believing that somehow by just being fairly good, that one day they'll fare very well on the day of judgment, that you would open up their eyes to how alarming that deception is, and that they would throw it off entirely today to understand not only what creation speaks to them and the Word of God speaks to them, but your very, their very conscience speaks to them of their sin and their need for a Savior, and to heed, Lord, this incredible revelation and light that you have given to them 
uh, that is intended to bring them to your son. And we pray today that it would do so. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit within their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, our Christmas program, it'll be 